Hello and welcome to Avatar, the podcast. We are officially in season two. Yes, I'm so excited. We made it. We made it. This is book two, Earth. Mm -hmm. And today we're going to be going through the first episode, The Avatar State. I am joined by Booster Greg. Uh, and I sound even more bassy than usual because I <laughs> seem to have caught in a cold of some kind. So uh, if you hear any coughing in the background or anything like that, we'll try to get that out of there. But I apologize for now and just smooth jazz. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> We need to get you a, a cup of tea from Iroh. Yeah. Before we jump into the episode, there's a lot of fun trivia I uncovered going into this episode that I wanted to cover first. First of which is this episode had four writers involved in the writing process, which is more than any other episode until the Tales of Ba Sing Se, which is going to be later in this season. That's crazy. Four writers? Four writers. I'm just going to give them now. This episode was written by Aaron Ehas, Elizabeth Welch Ehas, which I'm assuming is related to Aaron, Tim Hedrick, and John O'Brien. It was also directed by Giancarlo Volpe, who has been the director through season one. And apparently the team also had a lot of lead time going into season two before production started. So a lot of the artists worked on developing concepts for the first episode. They were able to explore a lot of different options for locations and the looks of the characters as the script was being written. But of course, as soon as production kicked in, the designers were back to their usual breakneck schedule. So you can see a lot of fun concept art for this episode. After this episode, though, we're back to being that really quick. I think they worked on multiple episodes at one time kind of production schedule. Well, yeah, you have to imagine, too, that they thought at first the blue spirit was going to be the last episode. So yeah, the fact that they got a season two, they must've been like just ecstatic about that. And they're like, all right, we have to like really just concentrate and make this as good as we can. Let's get in some of our best ideas, our best writers, and let's just figure it out. Yeah. They had the benefit too of going through the first season and kind of figuring out what worked and what didn't, what translated well into animation mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. I did also read that two of our team members that we've encountered before, Elsa Garagarza, who is my personal favorite, mm -hmm. she was the lead in the background department and was the brilliant mind behind the scary environment of the Fire Lord's throne room. Oh, yeah. She was promoted to the background design supervisor. And then Hye Jung Kim became the color supervisor. He played a big part in a lot of the character development. I think he was also the person behind the creation of the pirate characters. Well, congratulations so, all around. Just 15 years late. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> congratulations on your promotion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mike and Brian also took a short trip to Beijing, China, where they visited the Great Wall and the Forbidden City, whose scale and size they were using as inspiration for Ba Sing Se. So it's going to take a little bit for us to see the big city. Uh, but they did specifically put in a trip to go kind of explore the architecture and the different features and elements that they could bring into the story. The day before they were supposed to go home, they went to a architecture park where there were dozens of historical Chinese buildings from various eras, but it was about to close. So they split up and they went through the park and they took as many pictures as they possibly could, which they brought home and later used to create some of the architectural looks in the Earth Kingdom. I feel like someone should have checked hours of operation before going halfway across the world. Yeah. 
I think it was a happy accident from the way the story was told. Fair. I want to say their tour guide brought them to that architecture park. Just kind of like a look, here's a cool thing. And they were like, you just delivered us a gift on a golden platter, yeah, but true. it closes soon and we have to go take pictures of this place. <laughs> true, true. So I am so excited to go into this book. I think Avatar is a very unique show in that every season just gets better than the last. And we've touched on this before, how we go from these small settlements and villages to larger and larger cultural centers. And so we went from the Southern Water Tribe and Haru's village and, and all of that. And then we go up into the Northern Water Tribe, which is this huge city. And so from there, we're only going to see that scope and breadth of this of the show continue to grow, which I am so excited about. We'll also be meeting some new characters in the next few episodes. Will we? New we will. character. I'm so excited. I can't even go. I can't even go at that high register right now that I usually go I know. into. Your voice. Your oh, voice. My whole delivery. My whole shtick is gone. That's fine. Whatever. I, I want to say before we get into this episode, we were talking about this earlier. This season has been so difficult to just be like, all right, one episode and then stop. And then we'll just wait until yep. we do the next episode. Because as everyone knows, I've only seen the series once in its entirety and I never finished Korra. A lot of this stuff is fairly new to me. I remember, again, like the highlights like Appa's Lost Day and all of that kind of thing. But like, I don't remember Mai. I don't really remember Ty Lee. Uh, I, I, of course, remember Toph. But like whenever I see things like this episode, I just completely like forgot this is how book two opens. So it's all just like a new experience for me. And book one was fantastic. But book two is where like the meat and potatoes really seems to start. So yep. I'm very excited about it. Yeah, the show really ups the ante. Mm -hmm. Well, are you ready to jump in? Yes, now I'm ready. All right, let's do it. So like I said before, this episode, The Avatar State, was written by four writers mm -hmm. and directed by Giancarlo Volpe. And the episode opens with a dream. A misty, mountainous landscape surrounds the Southern Air Temple where Aang searches the empty grounds. He finds his way to the building where he and his friends found Monk Gyatso's remains. He sees himself crouched on the ground and gets pulled into the memory of that moment when he went into the Avatar State. The dreaming Aang is thrown back by the winds and falls into another memory where he emerged from the sanctuary on Crescent Island, filled with the power of his past lives. The floor is split open and Aang falls once more, this time onto a ship in the Northern Sea, before the giant koi spirit of the ocean on the night the Fire Nation naval fleet was defeated. Aang wakes gasping for air, finding himself in the hold of a ship where sleeping hammocks are hung. He's shaken by his dream and goes up to the deck for air. Katara follows him and asks if he wants to talk about it. Aang briefly tells her about the nightmare and she comforts him. I thought that was such a strong opening and it was a good kind of recap yeah. to guide us through like where we've been in the world and the relationship that Aang has with the Avatar state up to this point. This is also the first time that we get a hint that Aang is actually afraid of the Avatar state. Yes. Because he's not in control. Uh, he's really kind of um, being a puppet for his survival instincts or the other avatars who really kind of take over and do their thing. Yes. Before we were just like, oh yeah, it's just like his, his last resort thing. He just like pops it and he's good to go. But now we're seeing that like it terrifies him as it would anyone if you're not in control of your body and you get this surge of power from somewhere. Yeah, exactly. It's very interesting that the two times that we see 
Aang's dreams are when he's scared. Yes. It's an interesting choice to make. The last time he dreamt about when he left after finding out he was the Avatar and he was dreaming about Monk Yatso appearing before him and dissolving into dust or yeah. into ashes. Yeah. And also dreaming about the Fire Lord too. Yep. Remember that one scene at the very end of that dream? Yeah, he was like faceless and he like, showed Ozai. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. That was terrifying. I think that was... Was that the storm? Was that that episode? I think it was the storm. I think it was yeah. the storm. Yeah. Yeah. So really strong opening. Mm-hmm. And the next morning, as they're preparing to leave for the Earth Kingdom, Master Paku sees them off with gifts. He gives Katara an amulet containing water from the spirit oasis, Aang a box of waterbending scrolls to supplement his learning, and Sokka, Sokka gets a pat on the shoulder. <laughs> I love that. Katara gets this like <laughs> mystical water and he's like, she's, he warns her, don't lose that. That's special. Mm-hmm. And gets the scrolls, but he goes, you know, that's, that's no replacement for a true master. And then he goes, I know. And Sokka is just like, there you go, chief. You have fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good luck, son. <laughs> nice, nice to see you. Have a good life. <laughs> Team Avatar sets off for General Fong's Earth Kingdom base where they'll receive an escort to Omashu. Once there, Aang can begin his earthbending training with King Boomy. Something that threw me off a little bit. Yeah. Why do they... So this, this is my train of thought when I first watched this episode before we went into uh, Cave of Two Lovers. Why do they need an escort? They have a flying bison. That's not really explained here. They just go, yeah, yeah, here, we'll get you an escort there. And it's like, but they can fly there. Why do they need to do that? Yeah, I think the intention is an escort for safety mm-hmm. because they're kind of like the persona non grata right now after being involved in the fight. So if there are any Fire Nation soldiers or troops around, they want to give them that extra protection. Yeah. I mean, after seeing and this is going to be a minor spoiler for the next episode, and I'll try to keep it as vague as possible because I know there are some people who watch it episode by episode with us, mostly for yeah. mostly for Rob. So he doesn't fire me again. <laughs> it's. I think it's. After seeing that, I think it's because the Earth Kingdom is a much different place now, specifically around the Amashu area, and everyone knows it but them and us at this point. Yeah, that's a good point because, okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, the political environment has shifted a little bit in this area, and so maybe the details haven't really been given to Team Avatar, but they were just like, you know, let's just go with you just, just in case. Yeah, yeah. But I I forgot that this was how the season opened, that this was the plan, that they were meant to go to Omashu and Aang was supposed to learn earthbending from King Bumi, which is awesome. And this is also the first episode, kind of to what you're just saying about the waterbending master. This is the first episode where Katara is considered an official master of waterbending. That's true. Because she spent all that time in the North Pole. And I mean, God, props to her Yeah. for showing up in the Northern Water Tribe and then leaving as a master waterbender. Like, I don't think it was even a year. It was maybe six months or something. I feel, well, it can't be a year because Aang has to yeah. finish everything within the summer, right? Yep. By the end of summer. And he found out about the goal of learning all of the forms of bending by the end of summer in the winter solstice. Oh, yeah. So that was. Yeah. yeah, So we're like into the new year now. We're still going through the rest of winter. And now they're going into the Earth Kingdom to learn earth bending. So, yeah, he's on a very tight schedule. Earth bending is next. He's Mm going to keep learning water bending. And then eventually we'll find a firebending master to teach him before the summer is over. I had this thought, too, while watching this episode. And I understand that the avatar has to learn bending in a, in a specific sequence. And I think it's just because it leads itself into one into the other very well. Like yeah. air is very similar to water bending. So that's why you just kind of go into it. 
But I feel like in the emergency state in which the Avatar world is in currently, they probably should have just learned earthbending with Boomy first because they were already there. I see what you mean. Yeah. I think going to the Northern Water Tribe for Katara's benefit was also the reason why they went to the North Pole first, because in that situation, it wasn't just Aang learning bending to be the Avatar, but it was also finding a teacher for Katara's they can learn together. And actually, I don't know if that happened, if they went to Amashu before or after the solstice. I think it was before, now that you're bringing it up. Yes, so it was. It was like three episodes before. So they were just like, okay, yeah, let's go on a trip. Let's go learn water bending. It's going to be great. And then Roku's like, yeah, well, (laughs) about that. That, Yeah, that's a good point. And and now Aang's like, but I was just there. Oh, well, circle back to see your your good friend, Boomy. Mm -hmm. Another little detail from this scene before they're off for the Earth Kingdom is Katara and Sokka got updated outfits. That's true. Their warm weather clothing for season two. Which means we get to see Sokka's guns. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. He doesn't have any sleeves. Nope. I mean, his arms, everyone, relax. Not his actual guns. His his muscles is what I'm talking about. His muscles. His muscles. His manly warrior muscles. Mm -hmm. Elsewhere at a spa resort in the Earth Kingdom, Iroh is receiving a much-needed massage after being adrift at sea for three weeks. He notices Zuko sulking nearby and realizes that it's the third anniversary of Zuko's banishment. He goes to comfort his nephew, but after a few phrasing goofs on Iroh's part, Zuko leaves. Yeah, that was, um, I could see what his intention was, but oh man, that was a goof. It was, I'm sure he doesn't think you're worthless. Why would he banish you if he didn't care? Uncle, for being such a wise individual, was definitely choosing all of the wrong words in that scenario. <laughs> um, yes. what I find very interesting in book two is we're seeing a different side of Zuko. All we've really seen so far is the uh, angry prince who is kind of rebelling, uh, whether he's consciously doing so or not against his father and while still trying to get his father's approval. He's been a very full character, but we've never really seen any negative personality quirks. And by negative, I don't mean like being evil or trying to kill the avatar or, or capture him or whatever. I mean, like we haven't seen him be anything other than disciplined so far. And in in book two, we're starting to see that, especially here, like, Zuko's just kind of like sulking around. He's just kind of like, it's the anniversary. I feel sorry for myself. And Iroh's like, don't feel sorry for yourself. Your father cares because he banished you. It's just like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point because you're right. He's so far been very driven, very disciplined, very focused in his mission of capturing the Avatar. But now, now that he's kind of in like a resetting period where he has to rest and reflect and figure out where he's going next. He's letting his personal emotions kind of come to the surface. And with it being the anniversary of his banishment, he's just realizing, I can imagine it's kind of like a, what am I doing here? Like, what's the point of all of this? I've tried so hard and I still haven't gotten to where I need to go. And it's been three years. And <laughs> it's this Lincoln Park phase. He tried so hard and got so far, but in the end, it didn't, <laughs> even, end, matter. It didn't even matter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it is interesting how they were essentially abandoned in the North Pole, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. The way Uncle talks about how they were adrift at sea for three weeks with no food or water, which I don't know how that works. I imagine that maybe they had this. um, So here in my head, let's all step into Acorn's brain for a second. I was thinking like along the lines of of Raft, which is a survival game. If anyone likes survival games, it's a very fun one. 
you're adrift at sea, you have to collect items and materials and like craft stuff. It's fun. But along those lines, I was imagining Uncle and Zuko on some sort of raft and they have this like water filtration system, which they heat with their fire bending. They like <laughs> heated salt water to like make it evaporate and then become drinkable water. Just because okay. people can't survive for that long without fresh water. You know what I mean? No, I I, I can see that because um, Iroh loves tea so much. So I can't imagine he yeah. would go without tea for that long. So he's just like, I need to figure out how to get my tea fix in ASAP. Or maybe he just knew how to make fresh water from salt water from just like drinking tea on the ocean for so long. Because they were at sea for a very long time, just in a more official capacity. So Yeah, true. And I'm sure they had water stores. But like, I don't know. Uncle's been around. Yeah. You know, yeah. he's been around the block. He's seen some things. He's done some things. So I like to imagine that he knows how to survive in a situation like that. I, I kind of envisioned, I don't know why, but you remember the Pirates of the Caribbean where it's the big thing of like how Jack Sparrow like got off that island and he like used yeah. his back hair to make a rope. And like I yes. kind of like envisioned something <laughs> crazy like that with Iroh and Zuko. Yeah, exactly. Same same brain. Yeah. Um, but a couple notes about that spa. First of all, it's beautiful. It's mm -hmm. on like the edge of a waterfall and it's all the way across and it's attached to this beautiful village. But uh, I read about this little village resort and it was a lavish recreational center on the Suoku River, located near the previously occupied western coast of the Earth Kingdom. Originally a retreat for Earth Kingdom monks, the resort fell under Fire Nation control during the Hundred Year War, and it's considered one of the most welcoming locations in the entirety of the Fire Nation colonies. I had a thought about this spa, too, and the fact that Iroh's kind of getting a massage. Because yeah. on the last episode we, we recorded if everyone remembers, is The Last Airbender. Eero, the Shyamalan movie. The Shyamalan movie. Ugh. Anyways, <laughs> Eero, who's Iroh, I still hate it so much, was getting a <laughs> foot massage. And you were like, he would not be getting a massage. And I was In like... In that way. Well, I mean... I so know. I thought about this. Yeah. I'm glad you brought this up because, <laughs> yes, been in that one... Preparing your oh, defense. I hated it. <laughs> yes. Okay, so like... In the movie, he is getting a foot massage. Yeah. First of all, it's a foot massage yeah. from a an Earth Nation woman yeah. just randomly out of nowhere for no good reason. I think we kind of settled on the fact that he was Eero as a character was enjoying his status or whatever. Yeah. In this scene, Iroh just got out of a life threatening situation and is taking a couple days or a couple weeks to rest and restore and relax. And so he's getting a massage at a spa from male masseuses because he is now out of his life-threatening situation. To me, that's a completely different scenario. And know. this is where I like, I get it. This is what Ira would do. He's like, oh, we got out of our, our situation and now let's have some tea and relax and rest because a man needs his rest and all of the stuff that Ira says. See, I think in The Last Airbender, I read, not to defend it in any way, but I I read into the fact that that wasn't a random earthbending woman or earth uh, kingdom woman. That was just like, and like a masseuse as well, just not at a salon, because masseuses exist outside of salons too. Acorn, they don't just yeah, but it was like in the in middle there. of of like I don't even know. It almost yeah. seemed like it was in the middle of a courtyard, like off the docks or something. It was such a weird location. I did notice too that in this episode. It was a man giving the massage and not a woman, which I thought was yeah. interesting considering 
we thought it was very problematic that uh, Ira was just hitting on June yes. on that episode consistently. So I wonder if, and this is probably 2006 that we're in right now, I would imagine. So I wonder if the writers were just kind of like, yeah, maybe we don't repeat that. Maybe we try to like figure out another way. Or it's just the fact that Ira's a big dude and he's got a lot of stress, especially after that situation in his muscles. So he just wanted someone that's just like bigger framed potentially. Yeah. There's also the implication or at least the the cultural derivation from like bathhouses in Japan and that sort of thing. Those are very segregated. You have your female side and your male side. Interesting. And you have female attendants and male attendants. Yeah. And in Sento, uh, which are bathhouses in, in Japan, you go in, you check in, you buy like your entry and then you go into the side that's designated for you. And so you're undressing and bathing of, around people who are of your gender, male or female, mm-hmm. which you know, it's obviously problematic for people who are non-binary, right. but I think it's very traditional. This is yeah, very yeah. like yeah. for generations and generations of Japanese culture, it's been this way. So I almost think it's, it's probably along those lines too. If this is a Fire Nation spa in the Earth Kingdom, it would make sense to me, especially since this is kind of feudal Asia inspired. But is it a Fire Nation spa? Oh yeah, it would be at this point. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they took it over. They were like, you know what? This this place, we like this place. We're gonna take this from you. Thank you, monks. <laughs> Thank you, goodbye. Well, I was wondering too if if they took it over, but they kind of left the masseuses, masseuses, massagers. Oh, they probably did. They probably yeah. left them in there. So I was wondering if it wasn't taken over by the Fire Nation, if Iro was just like, No, I would like a man to give my massage because that's his tradition. He identifies as a man. So he's like, This is who I want to give my massage yeah like this is proper yeah or whatever yeah anyway going back to zuko actually what you were saying about how this is the first time we're really seeing zuko on a more personal level where zuko is being introspective and and kind of coming face to face with his emotions it's amazing to think back to when we first met zuko in the series and learned about his plans to capture the avatar because he's grown so much as a character since then yeah. And it's cool to be able to empathize so much with a quote unquote villain or an antagonist and want him to succeed and feeling for him because he's been banished and has been out in the world for so many years. And it's like, no, Zuko, I want you to go home. I want you to be happy. I want you to succeed. Although somehow not by capturing the Avatar, because I also like yeah. Aang. Yeah. You know? Well, the best villains, in my opinion, are the ones that you can empathize and identify with. So that's why yeah. like Lex Luthor is, is so popular is because he is the jealous older brother type. That's exactly what he yes. is. He was the hero and he's a little crooked, but like he was the hero and then Superman came along and just kind of showed them what like a real quote unquote hero can be. And all of a sudden he's out of the spotlight. Now he's the villain. And he just becomes obsessed. Uh, the Joker is a similar idea, except he's just crazy, but he's he wants the attention of one individual the whole time. So they have these um, aspects that you could be like, oh, like, I know what that feels like, or I know what that feels like. And Zuko is very much in this regard where he wants to be a whole family again. He never mm-hmm. considered himself to never be a part of the family, even though it's very obvious that he was in the same way that Iroh was not a part of that family. Yeah. So... Like you could be like, you know, one could say like, I might know what that feels like. There are moments where you kind of feel left out or whatever in your group of friends or family and you want to get back into that circle. Yep. So that that's his kind of like 
uh, empathetic trait that you can really kind of like identify with and point out. But you're right. At the same time, you're like, but Aang is just this like goofy, lovable little kid. Like, I don't want him to get into the clutches of the Fire Lord. But also at the same time, yeah. like, you're like, yeah, Zuko should be able to be a part of his family. But even though it's ultimately not good for him. Yes. Yeah. Not not the healthiest. Definitely environment not. No. to be in. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, some distance away at sea, a Fire Nation ship carrying Princess Azula nears the Earth Kingdom. Azula addresses her crew and tells them that her brother and uncle have disgraced the Fire Lord and, by extension, brought shame on them all. She warns the men that they will be punished if they hesitate in their service. As she dismisses them, her captain informs her that the tides will not allow them to enter the port on time. Azula, not satisfied with the delay, threatens to have the captain be thrown overboard if he does not bring the ship in. And holy crap, Uh this scene. So two things really quickly. Casting. Yes. Azula is voiced by Gray Griffin. Um, Gray for me, I know her most from uh, being Catwoman in the Arkham series, the from Rocksteady. Yeah. Uh, she was also RC in the Transformers live action movies, which includes the Bumblebee movie. But what was really impressive, I and mean, she's done a lot, a lot, a lot. But uh, what was really impressive is she's been the voice of Daphne in the Scooby Doo series since the 2000s. Yeah. So for the past 20 years, she's been the voice of Daphne. That um, is so cool. The captain, which is what I almost forgot about, was voiced by uh, Robin Atkin Downs. Uh, who is Hex in Ben 10 and also did a bunch of voices in Voltron Legendary Defender, which is the Netflix Voltron uh, okay. World of Warcraft. Like he's very much a like Nolan North, Troy Baker kind of like where they just do a variety of different roles. Granted, Nolan North and Troy Baker have gotten really large over the past decade or so because they've done a lot of leading roles where Robin hasn't really done as many. One of the really cool things that he's done uh, Superman versus the Elite, which is something that we covered in Adapt This DC Animating Universe podcast, which is my other podcast that I really need to just finish this episodes up on. Uh, but he was <laughs> the voice of a character named Manchester Black, who was really cool. Like he he's like the edgy superhero type that like kills people. Like if you think of like your typical late nineties, early two thousands superhero, yeah. edgy edge lord superhero, he's pretty much yeah. that. Um, which, oh, cool. which is kind of the point. But yeah, so he's been around for a while. And the fact that he's just the captain, like doesn't even have a character name. That was, I thought, really cool. Yeah, that's funny because that character is literally called Azula's captain yep. or like <laughs> Azula's ship captain. Yep. <laughs> he doesn't even have a name. But yeah, I just thought that was re- like whatever I see his name on there. I'm like, oh, no kidding. Because I can never point him out based on his voice. Oh, God. But to talk about Azula for a yes. second, I love Azula. I hate her so, so much. much. I hate her so much. I love to hate her. I just hate her. She's such a well-written, well-made yeah, character. Yes. And this is the perfect introduction to her because we see just how powerful of a character that she is because she can take any situation and intimidate the hell out of it and get what she wants in the end. Like... Oh, my gosh. And there's something to be said about the threat of implied violence. You know, like Zhao, he'll get up in your face. He'll knock you down. He'll like, you know, fire bend at you. He'll be physically aggressive. Azula is so verbally aggressive and mentally like manipulative. And it's so well done. I I think Zhao is very much like that, too, though, because there's that interrogation scene where he was just he didn't actually take any uh, violence against Aang. He was just talking to him about the violence. But he's definitely more into himself. He's definitely more narcissistic than Azula. Azula is just like the incarnation of evil, as far as I can (laughs) see right now. 
Like she is like she and she's unsettling too. Yes. Zhao is narcissistic in in like a I want to be the best. I want to get the gold medal yeah. and make everyone know my name. Yeah. Azula is like, I want to be a god. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's less ego and more like divine right well if that makes sense yeah so zhao really just wants everyone to know him and like him or he doesn't care if they like him he wants to be worshipped from a very mortal standpoint where you would worship a celebrity right yeah whereas azula is like i want to be the best like no one ever was because to yes. catch the avatar <laughs> is my real test oh my god <laughs> i'm not gonna go for this pokemon uh but yeah so yeah, she's just like, I want to be the best. I want to be perceived as perfection. Where Zhao doesn't care if he's perceived as perfection. He just wants people to know him and him to be immortalized through his name in the history yes. books. Yeah. Yeah. Which is such a cool distinction to be able to make. Because yeah. I've said this before. There are so many shows and works where the villain is just not three-dimensional. Yep. You don't get that kind of depth. Right. And we have two antagonists here with completely different backgrounds, ulterior motives, mm -hmm. and the things that they want out of life. And that's, I love that. Yeah, me too. So Aang and his friends arrive at General Fong's Earth Kingdom base and are greeted with honor and fireworks as their deeds at the North Pole have become well-known. General Fong is impressed that Aang single-handedly destroyed a Fire Nation fleet. He believes that with the power of the Avatar state, Aang is ready to face the Fire Lord. Aang protests, explaining he was only able to do what he did because of the Avatar state, which he cannot enter at will. Katara adds that he still needs to learn the four elements before he's truly ready. So, really quickly, General Fong. I didn't recognize the voice, but as soon as I saw, I saw the name, I got really excited. Daniel okay. Day Kim. If that name sounds familiar to you, it's because it you've seen all of Lost. He played Jin. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. He is also going to be coming up in The Legend of Korra as Hiroshi Sato. Oh, mm -hmm. no way. Really? Mm -hmm. uh, if you've ever played the Saints Row series, he was Johnny Gat, who was a really cool character. Uh, he's currently doing voices in Shira. Uh, there's that. I never watched this one, but but I know there's the Hawaii Five O remake or reboot or whatever you want to call it. He was in that the whole series from 2010 to 2017. So he's been around wow. for... A good amount of time. I first remember him from Lost, which was actually uh, two years before it started two years before this episode came out because this episode came out 2007, actually. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. Those are big roles. And especially in in Korra and Lost. You know, it's funny. I never really watched Lost. But as soon as you gave me that actor name and I looked it up, I recognize him. He is. Yep. You're right. It's like yep. one of the main characters. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. This episode came out 2006. The video game came out in 2007. The Burning oh, Earth. Okay. okay, but someone yelled at the TV or the TV. I think I'm on TV all the time. This is where I'm at in my life. Uh, <laughs> someone yelled at their radio or iPad or whatever. And I've corrected myself. 2006. Awesome. Fong tells the group he will help Aang figure out how to get into the Avatar state. And then Aang can face his destiny with the Fire Lord. Katara stands up for them, telling Fong they already have a plan. And Aang is pursuing his destiny his way. General Fong shows Aang the Earth Army Infirmary, which houses all the soldiers who were hurt by the war. Fong asks Aang to think about it because people are dying and Aang could end it now. Way to put the pressure on a child, by the way. I know, right? Jeez. It's like, again, someone is seeing Aang as a tool versus a person yeah it's like yep. 
oh, you have this ultimate power. Well, let's just get you inside that power and you can save the day. The end. Congrats. GG. Yeah. And this is really uh, solidifying the fact that the world views Avatar as an object or um, a right or for lack of a better term, whereas everyone who's close to him realizes that he's a person. He has feelings. Yeah. He has thoughts. And everyone else is just like, oh, yeah, like, no, he just he's here to save us. No, not necessarily. He's here to keep the yeah. balance between, you know, all the elements and be the bridge between the spiritual world and the physical world. Sure. But like there are moments, many more moments in between that where he still exists. So I think we saw that with UA at the end of book yeah. one. And now it's solidified. It's really it's really or some might say it's really cemented in. Oh. there you go our For, first pun, first of, pun book of book two you're welcome <laughs> <laughs> well done a couple things about fong's fortress too that i learned it was secluded in the earth kingdom as a military facility way up in the mountain range on the west coast and it's one of the few remaining earth kingdom strongholds in this area during the later stages of the of the hundred year war the complex included barracks for the troops guest quarters a large infirmary to care for injured soldiers, a temple for prayer, and even a recreation area for the soldiers to relax. The fortress held strategic significance to the Earth Kingdom and its proximity to the Fire Nation mainland made it a well positioned for any potential invasion. And so this was one of the places where they did a lot of development in going into book two. Um, There's a lot of like concept art and developmental art kind of showing this area and the the stronghold and that kind of thing. And I personally can see a lot of influence from the Great Wall of China in here because you, you saw how out of the central compound, there's like these giant walls yeah. stretching out yeah, across yeah. the land. Yeah. I think they even show it in a map. And maybe it was at this point, maybe it's a little bit later yeah. where you, you see just like a beeline between this fort and I'm presuming the, the Fire Lord's palace. It's just like, yep, yeah, we just go across the way that way. You go that way yes. and destroy it all in your sight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, he he did show it's like right across the ocean. Mm-hmm. It's like you you go west and you hit the fire station. Yeah. On her ship, Azula practices lightning generation under the watchful eyes of her royal advisors, Lo and Lee. After the sequence of moves, they tell her she was nearly perfect. Only one hair is out of place. Azula replies, that's not good enough, and continues practicing. The scene transitions from the crackling thunder of her lightning bolt to the thunder outside Ira's window. He wakes up and looks outside in concern. Uh, Oh, man. Well, Lo and Lee, first off, I'm coming at you real fast with all these, is voiced by Takayo Fisher, who's been in many different things. Uh, She was Mistress Ching in the Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. Uh, she's oh. been in movies like The Pursuit of Happiness, Moneyball, War of the Worlds. Uh, she's been acting since 1979 as well with little minor roles. So, oh, also Battle of the Planets. She was okay. additional voices through that. That was a classic anime way back in the 70s, early 80s. I remember that for oh a while. Gosh. Yeah. So she's been around doing voices for quite some time. Granted, she's done a bunch of other different things. Uh, a pup named Scooby Doo from 1988, Batman the Animated Series. The list really kind of goes on. Ooh, even in Batman Beyond, I love Batman Beyond. It's like my favorite Batman thing ever. But yeah, oh wow, she's been around for for quite a bit of time. So she's playing a couple different act- uh, characters in this. 
But granted, yeah. they, like they're two different characters, but they're kind of like just one character in that way. Yeah, uh, true. What what is that like? Um, the fates from Greek mythology in that same way that yep. they're really just one character, but they're technically three different people or beings, but they're really the same yes. person. Yeah, exactly. They're like they're they're twins, but they're like duplicates of each other. They're yeah. so similar. Yeah, this this part was unsettling to me. And really yeah. where you start to see Azula's idea of perfection is not stemming from herself, but from her environment in which she was raised. So the fact that she's able to produce this like perfect form and her flames are just like crazy or her lightning rather, because she was doing yeah. lightning at this point. We never, we haven't seen lightning generation yet. We've only seen Iroh uh, displace lightning. Yes. So far. Yes. And so, oh my gosh. Yeah. Talking about lightning generation. Yeah. Let's talk about that for yes, a second. Because yes, yes, yes. that is an advanced subskill within firebending that allows the user to produce lightning by separating the positive and negative energies internally before directing it up through the arm and out the fingertips. This technique is extremely precise and deadly and is referred to by some as the cold-blooded fire. Mm. For centuries, the skill of lightning generation was so rare that few even knew that it was possible at all. And this was fascinating. Yes. The movements involved in lightning generation are drawn from a form of Shaolin martial arts known as dragon shoots its whiskers. So that's cool. That's so cool. And the fact that she can do this, which is super rare, and she still gets criticized for having a couple hairs out of place by the end of it, which you can't really help anyways. Yeah, I was like, that's geez. that's like that's like a mastery of self that's off the charts. Yeah, yeah. Being able to control everything about your situation, including the things that you technically don't have control over, which mm -hmm. is like an object in gravity, <laughs> like yeah. your hair falling out of place. Like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's always going to be things you can't control. And I think it's super like. It's not I don't want to say toxic, but it's super uh, manipulative to be like, oh, well, if you have that attitude, you actually can't change it, which is what Lo and Lee are kind of doing. It's like, yeah, perfect, except for that hair. And then you could argue, they would probably argue that like, yeah, if you didn't move your head a certain way at a certain pace or whatever, you had that control, exactly. that wouldn't happen. Yep. And that's just like bull. Like, that's just absolute bull. But I also like think Azula's reaction to the hair made me afraid for her hair. I thought she was going to like just burn it off with how she was looking at it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. I think Lo and Lee's advice or uh, instruction yeah. is really a uh, fuel to the fire. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, you did it too. Oh, <laughs> uh, when it comes to Azula's perfection. So, yes. I mean, we, we've learned in the previous book that she's a firebending prodigy. Mm -hmm. And so that's also kind of why lightning generation is something she can do because it's such an advanced form of fire bending, but she's already a prodigy. She's already super talented. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. I also think really quickly too, that low and Lee are tools of the fire Lord to keep her the way she is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that. Yeah. Cause it's, it's even supported that they are both her political advisors as mm -hmm. well as her fire bending instructors, yeah. even though they're not firebenders themselves. They're just like, I don't know, master tacticians or advisors who can advise on so many different topics. I think that, I mean, if you're a prodigy, you don't need a firebending master, right? Not necessarily. I think you do. I think it just means that you pick up faster but like because you're, you're naturally talented. Right. But based on what we know and what I remember, and I won't say what that is, I feel like she can't improve, like she cannot improve her firebending anymore. 
So I wonder if she got to a point where she's just like, she's the best period and no one can teach her anything a because of her ego or her father's ego. So what Lowe and Lee do is they just keep on pushing her, even though they cannot firebend, they push her mentally to keep on improving herself. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I can see that. I think to some extent that's what they're doing because mm. they're the ones who are advising her on all things royal. So her position as a princess, her position in the royal family, her position as a, a firebender, they're just like her general advisors, but everything is linked, you know? It's yep. it's pushing her as a person yes. towards perfection. Yeah. And trying to get her to a point where she I don't know, overrides everything. She ascends to a different level. And then kind of lastly, Iroh's premonition. Iroh basically has spidey senses. I didn't. <laughs> I thought that at first, too. On my second yeah. and third rewatching, I think he heard the thunder being generated from the lightning or he felt the electricity in the air and he, know, yeah. he knows what that feeling is and he knows that that's lightning generation. So that's when he was just like, oh, no. I think he does, too, because yeah. in the next couple scenes, we see that Azula reaches the Earth Kingdom and finds them. So she's nearby. Yeah. She's out on the she's ocean real doing close. this. And so I like to think that was the same thunder. Mm -hmm. Later that night, Aang goes to General Fong to tell him he's willing to go along with the general's plan. He'll fight the Fire Lord. Back in their room, he tells the others what he's done. And Katara tells him this isn't the right way to deal with the situation. The right way is with practice, study, and discipline. Sokka encourages the idea, seeing it as a simple, obvious shortcut. As Katara dismisses the idea, saying it's throwing away all of their hard work, Aang insists he's just being realistic because he doesn't have enough time to learn the elements the way he should. So I just had some thoughts on this. Yeah. Sokka likes the idea of the shortcut. But he's not as Sokka-esque as he's been in the past. So Sokka is still, and what I mean by him not being very Sokka-y from what we know, is that he's heartbroken right now. His girlfriend turned into oh, the moon true. not too long ago. So he's very like lax throughout the first couple episodes of the season. We'll see it a, a little a little more a little later in this episode. Um, and he's just like, yeah, you oh want to do the God. shortcut, do the shortcut. Like he doesn't, he's trying to care, but he just can't bring himself to necessarily is how I kind I of viewed put it. put two and two together. Yeah. No, you were so right. This whole episode, he's just kind of on autopilot. Yep. We see him like just lying in his bunk with mm -hmm. his hair down, just mm -hmm. kind of staring off into space, getting involved in conversations when they address him, but like not really. Yeah. He's not like being a part of things animated like he usually is. Yeah. He's just kind of like delivering the line and that's about it. Which is like, oh no, yeah. When I realized that, I was like, no, buddy, I'm so sorry. I still yeah. don't, I still don't ship you two guys, but like, still, I feel but bad. like I feel for your heartache. Yeah. Um. So there was that, and also Katara. It's just the I'm not angry. I'm more disappointed. Kind of <laughs> delivery. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. yeah. It's like it's almost like on a mo on a mom level like yeah i raised you better than this yeah she's like i can't support this and just like takes off the next day fong begins testing ang with various substances and elemental props in an attempt to trigger the avatar state first he serves ang a special chi enhancing tea which increases energy in soldiers <laughs> but it only gives ang an energy rush he gives ang he probably gave him ginseng yeah, it's probably, probably what he did. <laughs> he's just like, is it working now? Like, I can't tell. I can't tell. And he's literally bouncing off the walls, upside down, air scootering everywhere. 
Yeah. Oh, my God. Sokka then tries to scare Aang into the Avatar state by putting Momo inside his shirt. (laughs) So Momo replaced his head. But that didn't work either. No, that was really funny, though. It was actually startling. Like when it cut to his body with Momo in his head area, it was like, oh. Well, I think what made it so startling is the proportions worked out really well. Yeah. Because it didn't look like Momo was just like sitting in his shirt. It looked like he he was Momo. And then Fong organizes... Fong organizes a ritual in which Aang wears clothing from all four nations and is splashed with a combination of all four elements, but that only makes his, makes him sneeze. I love this part because they make this big ceremonial thing where he's just like, water, earth, and fire, now wind, and then he just throws mud <laughs> at Aang. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, that that is what would happen. It just makes just be mud. mud. <laughs> At the spa, Iroh shows Zuko the shells he's collected and tells his nephew that he'll enjoy these keepsakes for years to come. Their interaction is interrupted, however, by Azula, who tells them father has changed his mind. He regrets Zuko's banishment and wants him to come home. Ozai has supposedly caught wind of treacherous plots and believes family is the only one to be trusted. I love Azula's thematic music in this. It's so, like unsettling and kind of like prickly kind of like her yeah kind (laughs) of like her (laughs) but it's it's interesting too to see azula's dynamic with zuko and her dynamic with iroh yeah because she snaps at uncle she does not show the same deference and respect to iroh that zuko does well and that's to be expected because i i bet you that ozai does not respect his brother at all Right. And He's if we, a traitor. Yeah. And a failure. If we've learned anything, it's that um, Iroh is nothing like his brother. And that's a disgrace to Ozai. But also that Iroh is currently still engaged in a battle for Zuko's soul, essentially. So yep. while Zuko still respects his uncle, that means that Iroh still has a chance to kind of redeem his nephew. Whereas Azula is a lost cause. Oh, yeah. She's so far gone. Yeah. And I like what you said about it's still a fight for Zuko's soul because in this scene, we see how strong the the pull of home yeah. and the pull of his family is. Yeah. He spent three years out in the world with Iroh, listening to his his wisdom and his advice. And one, one sentence from Missoula makes him forget everything and go, father wants me home. Yeah. And it's like hook, line, and sinker. He's done. That's something that... Like I can really relate to that Zuko's displaying right now because you know, like I remember like when I went to college a thousand years ago, it feels like anyways, I would <laughs> go to college, I would be growing as an individual, I'd be making my own choices, I would be independent from my parents because I didn't I did not live at home when I was in college. And then I would go home and I would just fall into the same old patterns. I would I'd be excited to go home and be like, Look how much I've changed, and then I would just fall into the same patterns. And that's exactly what Zuko is displaying here. Is he's yeah. he's Ooh been betraying his father through his actions as the blue spirit through his actions of like trying to get the avatar uh, without Zhao's help or under Zhao's nose essentially and as yeah. soon as Azula's like oh yeah dad really likes you and wants you to come home and to praise you he just goes right back into that like I want my honor like the the honor Zuko versus like Zuko and there's a very different yeah. vocal tone in those two Zukos as well oh yes yeah no, that's that's a great point. And I forgot to bring that up because you're right. He has a different delivery mm-hmm. when he's those two different Zukos. And yep. in the scene with his sister, he's very soft and almost unsure and reflective and very like 
filled filled with yearning. Yeah. You can hear it in his voice. Yeah. Which, you know, props to Dante Bosco. Yes. Great performance. Absolutely. Katara and Aang have a heart-to-heart on the roof at sunset. Katara explains that it's scary for the people who love him to watch him be in that much rage and pain. Aang stands by his decision, saying that he's already a hundred years late. He needs to do this. A saddened Katara leaves, telling him she won't be coming to see their attempt the next day. That's, they say goodnight. That's the disappointing Katara. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. My favorite thing about this scene, though, is it's another example in this show of positive conflict mm-hmm. that doesn't come down to name calling or insults. It's just two people sharing their perspectives, yeah. disagreeing with each other, but then allowing each other to occupy their own space with their own opinions. So Katara is like, I feel this way. It's scary. I'm afraid for you. And Aang's like, I have all this pressure. I'm 100 years late. This is my job. I have to do this. And then Katara is saying, well, I don't agree. And Aang's like, well, I'm not going to change my mind. And then they just kind of let it be. And she's like, okay, well, here's my boundary. I'm not coming tomorrow because I can't support this. Yeah. And he's like, okay. Yeah, they handle so, that a lot I mean, better than I do. I would. <laughs> I'd be like, you're an idiot. You can't do that. It's a shortcut. And it's like obviously hurting you. Yeah, exactly. But like, again, just in this world that we live in, I, I want to take a, a second to stop and talk about this and address it. And yeah. just as like a general reminder for anyone listening, it's so much harder to work through a conflict with someone without dehumanizing them. Yes, I agree. But it's worth it. When you dehumanize someone, when you call them names or take away their power by saying they don't know what they want and they're being stupid and they are a terrible person and like whatever people say to each other, that's not addressing the issue, which is you just have differing views. Yeah. So just food for thought, Mm -hmm. something to think about. The same night, Zuko excitedly prepares to go home while his uncle sits in thought. I've never known my brother to regret anything, Iroh tells Zuko. He warns Zuko that in their family, things are not always what they seem. Zuko explodes and tells his uncle that he's a shallow old man who's always been jealous of his brother. And Iroh looks away sadly. I hate this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I hate this. But at the same time, like, it's so real and it's where Zuko is right now. That's that's who he is. And, you know, so much props and love to Iroh for being able to take that because that is something that our elders and parents and uncles and, you know, godparents and anyone who's in your life in like a rearing sense where they're trying to help you through the world. Yeah. That's something that everyone goes through where they're rebuked and they're turned away and they're shouted at because the person like care, they care about thinks they know better but they sometimes don't well, so I, I i mean yes i agree with all of that 110 percent. i'm stopping i've been trying to stop saying 100 but i've just been replacing it with 110 percent, or like maybe a, like a <laughs> much more exaggerated so i'll i'll try yeah i absolutely agree with that what i kind of like discovered or thought after the many viewings is that I think Iroh kind of anticipated this reaction from Zuko because what he's doing right now, Iroh is challenging Zuko's perception of his father. And whenever someone's perception gets challenged, generally speaking, which I know is dangerous to do, but generally speaking, it's met with outrage and it's not met with a calm mind. And Zuko is not a calm mind 
at all. No. So I think like Iroh is just like, I have to warn him about this, but also I'm preparing myself for what this is going to be because we saw in, it was the last episode where Iroh's like mentioned that ever since I lost my son, I've been really like, you are my son. Zuko's like, yeah, I know. And they have this really like bonding moment. And now to have Zuko turn around and say like, you're just jealous. Like you just want your own son. You're jealous of the relationship that my father and I have and blah, blah, blah. Like that's gotta be a just uh, daggers in your heart. Just yeah, yeah. Just a dagger through your heart. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's really driving it home right there. They go through these three years together. They go through the siege of the North together. They have that moment on the boat when he's about to leave, when Iroh shares like, I've always thought of you as my son. And Zuko's yeah. like, I know. And it's just so nice. Yeah. And then to get to hear, and again, that one sentence mm -hmm. from his sister and everything goes back to normal mm -hmm. in his mind. That is my uncle. This is my father. Mm -hmm. I am the crown prince. Yep. And I want to go home. God. Mm -hmm. That night, Aang has another dream about the Avatar state. This time, remembering the first time he went into the Avatar state on Zuko's ship. He wakes and asks Sokka for advice. What can he say? Sokka says. You're the Avatar. Who knows better than you? Aang lies back in bed to think about Sokka's words. That delivery too from Sokka. He's just like, yeah. He's like, whatever, man. Like, I don't care. Yeah, you're the Avatar. Do whatever you want. It's just that lax attitude. Yeah, it's such a passive Sokka. Yeah. And I didn't really put together why. I thought, I guess it was just like where they were. They were in a cozy place. They weren't camping. It was like a little more, mm. I don't know, a little more relaxed. But his emotional turmoil after just losing a love interest mm -hmm. makes so much more sense. Yeah. That's, oh, Heartbreaking. I know. The next morning, Zuko makes his way down the mountain path to the port. He is soon joined by Iroh, who has apparently changed his mind. Iroh tells Zuko that family sticks together, and Zuko has a happy memory of being with his father. But as they head for the ship, Iroh looks out at the water warily. This part, though, oh my God. I could just talk forever about what's going on in Zuko's head in this one sentence. Yeah, go for it. Iroh's putting on a show, which he's never really oh, had yeah. to do as much for Zuko. And he's just like, family sticks together. And then he puts his hand on Zuko's shoulder, which Zuko's brain then links the feeling of his father doing that same thing to Iroh doing that in a positive oh. way. Because because Zuko doesn't view his father as being evil. He views yep. his father as uh, being like the all the almighty, essentially, for lack of a better term. Like he is perfection. He is what like I want to strive to get my honor back so he can love me again. Like he I need his approval. And the fact that yeah. he just right here linked the that feeling of being um, accepted and loved, quote unquote, loved uh, by Ozai to actually being loved by Iroh means that Iroh is still kind of winning this battle. Yeah, it's yeah, you're right. His brain took Iroh's fatherly affection yes. and switched it in his head to and linked it to a memory of his own father, which to your point, I think he still sees that it's if only I can make my father happy everything can go back to the way it was. He would love me again. Yes, but I also think that this linking is kind of breaking that uh, mentality a little bit more because if he can feel the same way from Iroh, he doesn't need his father, his father's yeah. approval. He doesn't, 
it's like, it's like hard to describe, but the fact that he can link such a strong emotion that he has for like the acceptance of his father and he's able to have that same feeling from the acceptance of his uncle is just powerful that speaks like yes. so much and I, I just saw that and i was just like i had paused it on that scene and i was like jeez with one flashback scene they showed that yeah no i get it and i i totally agree it's it's almost like a form of emotional foreshadowing yes it's yeah he can recognize the paternal love and acceptance and fatherly tenderness from Iroh because mm-hmm. he's linking it to his father. Yeah. And so it shows us that at least subconsciously, Zuko recognizes that Iroh is kind of his father figure. Yep. He's the one who can give him that kind of affection that he's craving. But currently, his confused, homesick brain is making the hollow connection to his own father as that source. Yeah. Which we all know. Ozai's not capable of. He does, he does not feel about Zuko that way. Yeah. No. Maybe Azula. Maybe. Oh, yeah. But like that's even that's like twisted. Yeah. Even then he almost Ozai almost sees Azula as like a tool. Yeah. I can see that. He's like possessive of her because she's his daughter. But at the same time, he doesn't see her as a person so much, but almost like it ends to the means. Mm. Ugh. We're mm-hmm. going to get into that relationship yeah. later. Oh, geez. <laughs> Aang tells Fong that he's done trying to trigger the Avatar state on purpose because it can only be triggered when he's in danger. I was afraid you'd say that, the general responds. He earthbends his desk across the floor and pushes Aang out of a window. Before Aang can recover in the courtyard below, Fong orders his men to attack the Avatar. Both his soldiers and the general himself attack Aang with giant coin-shaped discs. Aang dodges and avoids their attacks without fighting back. Sokka breaks free from the soldiers restraining him and runs to help Aang. Back with Zuko and Iroh, they reach the dock and are warmly welcomed by Azula. All the while, Iroh looks around in suspicion. Azula tells the captain to set a course for home. The ship's captain, in a moment of absentmindedness, orders the crew to raise the anchors as they are taking the prisoners home. Iroh and Zuko catch the captain's slip and realize what Azula's true intentions were. Mm-hmm. Zuko throws the captain overboard and he and his uncle fight for their lives. I think this is what they, they call the other shoe dropping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and fun fact here, the creators had originally planned on Azula vaporizing the captain on the spot after this slip up, but they decided it would be too inappropriate for a show designed Uh, towards a young demographic. Back in the Earth Kingdom, Katara hears noises coming from outside, from her cot. She becomes worried and decides to go check on the others. When she gets outside, she finds the general and his soldiers trying to force Aang into the Avatar state. Katara and Sokka jump into action to help their friend. Sokka gets on an ostrich horse, and Katara uses waterbending to fend off General Fong. But the general reduces her water into mud with his own earthbending. Seeing an opportunity, he pulls Katara into the ground and tells Aang he could save her if he was in the Avatar state. Aang pleads with the general to let her go, but the general doesn't listen. He pulls Katara fully under. Enraged, Aang enters the Avatar state and begins to devastate his surroundings. Oh boy. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get to the gravity of that situation, I just got to point out, Greg, you really are Sokka <laughs> because there's that one moment where Sokka comes up to the ostrich horse and is like, good 
bird horse thingy. <laughs> I thought I was like, yes, I, I felt a little more validated with my descriptions after that. Yeah. <laughs> Wolf, cow, bat thing. <laughs> anyway, this is such an intense moment. And again, we're, we're going back to that whole concept of this is a kid's show, but it's mm-hmm. introducing really real threatening themes like this is such a bad guy move, actually causing pain or hurt or harm to someone to get an outcome out of another character and Aang's desperation in this scene, like the voice acting. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And it also like looking at Fong's perspective is he thinks he's doing ultimately good by trying to trigger the avatar state because if he knows how to yeah. trigger it, then he can do so in a battle and then he'll be the hero. He'll help. I don't know if Fong's really as obsessed with like glory. He just wants this war to be over, I think. So yeah. he has the best intentions, but he's just going about it completely wrong. He's also an idiot. So there's that. There's that. <laughs> there's that. But like, it's very interesting to me how closely you can turn into a villain in a scenario, even with like non-villain intentions or personality oh, yeah. traits. I really think that's what we're seeing here. Yeah, yeah, because he's he's not even Fire Nation. He's an Earth Kingdom general. Yeah. And... Through his rationale, this is what it leads him to do. Yeah, yeah. I also, Which is kind of like baddie stuff. I don't think I've mentioned this before, but I really like how earthbenders don't wear shoes. I yeah. really, I really like that touch. Me too. Yeah, yeah. We see everyone in this in this uh, base who's an earthbender not wearing shoes. And that's a really cool detail. And I don't think Boomy was wearing shoes when he fought nope. against Aang either. Nope, he wasn't on the ship. Zuko fights his way to his sister, and the siblings face off. Azula taunts her brother with the truth, telling him their father blames uncle for the loss of the North Pole and considers Zuko a miserable failure. Why would he want Zuko back home if not to lock him up where Zuko can no longer embarrass him? Zuko attacks her and we see the prodigy in action. Azula easily defends and blocks all of Zuko's attacks and knocks him to the ground with one strike of blue fire. As Azula generates lightning for a final attack on her defenseless and disoriented brother, Iroh grabs hold of her and redirects her blast into a nearby cliffside. He throws her overboard and escapes with his nephew. Oh, mm-hmm. So lightning misdirection or redirection. Azula did not see yeah. that coming. <laughs> no, her she didn't. Her face was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Which was satisfying. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's a great point. There's lightning generation, mm-hmm. which we've seen Azula do. And mm-hmm. then there's lightning redirection, which is a whole other ball game. Mm-hmm. And we're definitely going to talk about that more later. Yeah. But we have seen Iroh do it. Yeah. Yeah. That was in that was definitely in the storm. That yes. The first time we saw that. So many yeah. references to the storm in this episode. It's almost like it was one of the best episodes of the season or something. It, it's almost like it would have wound up on one of our lists, right? Of top <laughs> episodes. Um, a quick note about the fire color. Mike and Brian said, to symbolize that Azula was a firebending prodigy and more skilled than her brother, her firebending effects were colored blue. Practically, the blue fire also helped distinguish her attacks from Zuko's red firebending during all their fights. But to go back to something that Ari said in an email, I like the fan theory that Azula's fire is a symbol of her depression and sadness because the temperature does not determine the color of the fire, but 
a chemical which burns in the fire, as she said in her her email. So one possible chemical which makes fire turn blue is salt. And so her fire burns blue because of the salt from her tears. Granted, I haven't seen enough of Azula yet, but she doesn't strike me as the crying type. She doesn't, not in like the typical boohoo I'm sad kind of way, Mm -hmm. but just in like the I'm very turbulent and tormented inside kind of way. Okay. I can see that. I I do like that fan theory though a lot. That's really cool. I do too. Um, And I mean, to put it into also gamer terms, like the salt, she gets very salty about (laughs) losing and about not being able to get what she wants. And so, you know. Salt from your tears, salt from her perseverance, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Just being a salty individual. Yeah. Yes. Just being a salty individual. Exactly. (laughs) So shout out to Ari. Thank you again, Ari, for that email. Back at the Earth Kingdom base, Fong reveals to Aang that Katara is safe and that her disappearance was merely a trick to trigger the Avatar state. His words do not reach Aang, who continues to destroy the base with waves of earth bending. Avatar Roku suddenly appears and takes a projection of Aang's spirit with him on Fang, telling the young Avatar it's time that he learned. He tells Aang that the Avatar state is a defense mechanism designed to empower him with the skills and knowledge of all the past Avatars. In the Avatar state, he is at his most powerful, but he is also at his most vulnerable. As Roku speaks, we see Avatar Kyoshi, Avatar Kuruk, Avatar Yang Chen, and Avatar Seto unleashing incredible displays of bending power using the power of the Avatar. Roku goes on to say, if an Avatar were to be killed while in the Avatar state, the reincarnation cycle would be broken and the Avatar would cease to exist. With these words, Roku returns Aang to his body where the young Avatar becomes aware of the destruction around him. He apologizes to Katara, telling her he hopes she never has to see him like that again. The general is elated about the results, telling them they just have to find a way to control Aang when he's like that. Sokka bops Fong on the head to knock him out and asks (laughs) the remaining soldiers if they have a problem with that. (laughs) They all shake their head no. (laughs) Anyone got a problem with that? No? All right, cool. We're out of (laughs) here. Everyone's like, no, yeah, he's a jerk. (laughs) Team Avatar says goodbye to the Earth Kingdom base and flies away to Amashu. Back in the resort village, Azula holds up a wanted poster depicting Zuko and Iroh's faces and warns the gathered villagers that anybody found harboring them will face the wrath of the Fire Lord. Zuko and Iroh, having escaped Azula's guards, stop at a small creek. They cut off their topknots and place them in the creek, watching as the current slowly washes them out of sight and with it, they're tied to the Fire Nation. I don't want to be dun. I don't want to be insensitive about any yeah. of this. But I am so happy that that idiotic, stupid-looking topknot is finally gone. <laughs> we know how much you hate that topknot. so dumb. <laughs> cue, cue the introduction of Emo Zuko. Yes. Yes. I'm so excited. He's going to have shaggy hair soon yep. enough. Oh, it's, yeah. so, it's such a good look for him. It is. I, I, I do appreciate it. Yeah. I prefer it. But on the topic of cutting off topknots... I found two different sources to kind of explain the importance of that action. The cutting of the hair parallels the story of Buddha, who, when starting his journey of self-discovery and enlightenment, cut his hair beside a river. The other is a tie to samurai society, because if a samurai was to abandon his societal role, either to join the priesthood or to choose a different life, the man would cut off his top knot to signal the end of an era of their life. After that, they would no longer enjoy the high societal status that they had as a samurai. The, the second one is 
what I thought exactly when they did that and the way it like went into the river and just kind of like washed away. Yeah, yeah that's me how too. I viewed it as. I like to think it was a nice combination because yeah. I want to say, or I would like to think that Mike and Brian and the other writers would have come across the story of the Buddha in their mm. research and used that as like, oh yeah, perfect, a river to help wash away their their top knot and kind of signal the washing of their old selves into the new selves and all of that. But then at the same time, that whole samurai concept is pretty pretty well established. Yeah, and the fact that at least part of the Fire Nation's uh, culture is based off of Japanese yes. culture. Has yeah, the, there you go. The same ties. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's our episode. Yeah. Yay! The Avatar State. Do you have any fun facts from that? Anything to kind of wrap things up before we go into our MVPs? Um, this is the first time that we've seen Aang earthbending. Yeah, Even true. though he's just in the Avatar State, but this is the first time it's happened. And the writing on Zuko's knife said never give up without a fight which is interesting Ooh. which is because considering in the next episode he's pretty it's pretty uh laid back <laughs> in terms yeah. of the fight <laughs> yeah true but you know what i actually love that because there's a couple really long shots where it focuses on the knife and we can very clearly see the characters so if we could read the characters we would know in that moment as they're cutting their hair by the river the knife that they're cutting their hair with says never give up without a fight. Yeah. And it kind of adds this layer of meaning to the scene where they're not doing this because they're giving up. They're doing this because they're adapting to the situation right. and right. they're still not going to give up, but this is them going into a new chapter. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I guess I didn't think, I didn't think about it that way, but I'm very, I'm very excited for Zuko's journey from now until the rest of Avatar. Yeah. So do you have an MVP of the episode? Oh, MVP for this episode. I'm going to say Sokka, but not because he's my favorite character, but because even though he was a little bit heartbroken and he wasn't quite himself, he still stood by Aang no matter what he chose. Yeah. I appreciate that. And while I understand why Katara couldn't and wouldn't do that, Sokka's approach is very much like, I'm your friend. And if I don't agree with what you're doing, I'm still your friend and I'm going to stand by you. And if you regret it later, I'll be there because I'm your friend and that's what's going to happen. Whereas Katara, I'm not saying that's not Katara's mentality, but right, right, right. But it's just like that became a lot more meaningful to me for for Sokka. And also Katara is wrestling feelings for Aang as well. And Sokka doesn't have that problem. Yeah, not problem, true. But he doesn't have that like that extra layer to all this complication. He's just like, we're buds. You want to do this, you do it. If you don't want to do this, I'm with you. Whatever. Like that's the way yeah. it's going to go. Yeah. I think to your point, Sokka approaches it more as like a warrior where it's like, you're my friend. You're my, my comrade. Like I fight by your side. I'm going to be there for you no matter what we go through. And then Katara is facing it more of like a moral dilemma. Yeah. She's seen the the morals of it, the moral ambiguity or the the problems with the bigger picture. And Sokka is really just like, I'm right or die. I'm I'm right yeah. there with you. Yeah. Because I I also think too that like it's there a difference in their um philosophy as well, where Sokka is the strategist, but he can think on his feet as well. So he's like, all right, cool. Like yeah. if we just get to this point, we'll just get out of it. Whereas Katara is like, no, I can see this is gonna hurt you. 
So I don't want you yes. to do this. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's soccer for that reason. But like a close second is, is Iroh because he was just, and it's for the same exact reason, to be honest with you, is because he stood by Zuko no matter what Zuko threw at him. So I guess yeah. I just like loyalty this week <laughs> or perceived loyalty from me is what I'm, I'm into this week. The flavor of the week is loyalty. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, that's a tough one for me. Oh, man. You know what? I'm going to go out in left field and say my MVP is Azula. Interesting. Why? Yeah. I choose her as the MVP because she is the person who's pushing the story forward in like a huge way. Yeah. She's not only reintroducing Zuko's relationship with his family to a negative end because it's she reveals that, no, actually, father doesn't care about you and he's embarrassed and you suck and you're not going home and all of these awful things to yeah. kind of actually on that note, I think it's because of Azula that Zuko is able to go through the rebirth that he is going to in this in this book. I can see that. Yeah, she's she's just another um, influence on his path and like a larger one. I, I would still argue that Iroh is going to be the largest influence that gets him going. Oh, yeah. Agreed. Between the two of them, they're the two forces like pushing Zuko yeah. along his path. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, like like her lying to Zuko in this episode. Yeah, absolutely. I think got him out of that mindset of like, my dad is a good dude to, oh my God, my dad is a monster, which only gets reinforced as we go through this season. Yes, exactly. And I also just kind of want to vote for Azula because fair. Fair. I don't know, maybe the flavor of my week is like, Evil. sadistic danger sadistic. evil something <laughs> lightning <laughs> just in, enjoying the bad yeah. of her i don't know I, just, I love to hate her so much that's fair it was almost fong for me for that exact reason too where it's just like he's just an idiot and i just kind of like him because he's such a big idiot and he doesn't yeah. know how much of an idiot it is and i don't view him as being a jerk i just think he's oblivious so like his men are just like we don't have a problem with this because they're not that he's mean to them they're just like he doesn't know what he's doing he just yes. like has this base somehow he's he might be the earth kingdom's zhao i was just thinking <laughs> that do you want to how much do you want to bet he got promoted to this position for some stupid reason oh probably like, yeah like zhao he kissed someone's butt oh, yeah. and they're like okay no you're great yeah you you deserve this base that that's acceptable headcanon for me absolutely that's yep. that's what happened and like the fact that he has this big throne room and it's so like showy uh -huh. and all oh he's he's definitely the earth kingdom Zhao. confirmed oh, yes. yeah yeah love it what about your moral of the story uh, moral of this story let me think this one's tougher than the mvp um it is yeah because we're starting off the new the new season and we haven't been introduced the the book long moral which i'm convinced gets introduced next episode this one i think if you want i can go first and if you like it you can jump on my little moral of the story bandwagon let me think about how to phrase it but it's okay. definitely along the lines of like don't take a shortcut yeah but that that's kind of where my head's at but yeah please you go first and then i'll just tack on <laughs> well that's essentially what mine is and okay. i'm taking it from the words of Katara, which okay. is approach your challenges with practice, study, and discipline. There are no shortcuts. See, like, I think there are shortcuts for things sometimes, but like major events like, oh, I don't know, rescuing the world from an evil dictator that's <laughs> hell bent on destroying everything is not one of those times you should be taking no. a shortcut. 
using the only real what they perceive as a tool or a weapon against it. No, you don't take a bazooka and don't really know how to use it and just shoot it and hope for the best. You have to learn like the strategies, how to operate this thing. And it might not even be the right tool for the job. You don't know until you actually like sit down and do the homework. All right. Well, that is all the time we have for this week's episode. We're so happy that you're joining us for book two as we go through the Earth Kingdom and Aang's journey into earthbending. Hopefully you've told some friends about the podcast and you are all excited to go into this next chapter with us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, really quickly too, I want to, I want to thank everyone for understanding during our, our little break and, and rejoining us because it's not yes. like we weren't just doing nothing. There was a lot of stuff that we wanted to talk about. and wanted to, to strategize and not take any shortcuts as we've learned <laughs> from this episode. Uh, so we really appreciate that you've come back to hang out with us and, and really dive into book two. And I, in such a way that I can't even begin to tell you how, how excited I am to, to just really get into where, in my opinion, the series yeah. really picks up. So absolutely. Yeah. hundred percent. We have some fun things too planned for the future, yeah. not only uh pin related, but also kind of community related. Yeah. So we'll keep you posted. Remember, the best way to support the show right now is still to tell your friends Mm -hmm. and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts along with a written review. Every five-star review, we will be reading on the show and or Engmail. Mm -hmm. And the same goes for anyone who tweets at us at Podcast Avatar or writes us an email at avatarthepodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. Shout outs to everyone who writes us an email with five star review in the subject line. We super appreciate it. We still want to hear from you, even if you can't literally leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. So keep those coming. Mm -hmm. And we'll continue to make Angmail videos. We're really enjoying them. We're hoping that you do too. Yeah. And remember, if you're caught up on all of the episodes and and the Ang Mail episodes and literally all of the content that we've been putting out over the past. How long have we been doing this? Oh, my God. Like since like June or July, right? I want to say like five months, six months. Yeah. Over the past, let's say five or six months for argument's sake. Uh, you can always join me over at twitch.tv slash booster egg on Monday and Friday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, we've gotten a lot of people that have joined us over the past uh, couple months that have really yeah. just had it really been like a good addition to not only the avatar the podcast community but also to uh the community that we're building over on twitch too so yeah yeah and the same thing goes for the gate generation yes we that's have right. a discord we have a community uh we're doing a lot of cool things over there on that channel so if you are interested in checking out the community maybe hopping into the avatar of the podcast discord channel please feel free you can find a link to that discord on geekgeneration.com and you can find me on the internet at acorn bandit if you want to see all the things i have going on you can find all the links on joysons.com that's j-o-i-s-a-n-s.com slash pages slash acorn Long story short, if you're listening to us for the first time, I create enamel pins and I'm also on another podcast here on the Geek Generation Network, which is Dark, Mm. a companion podcast to the Netflix TV series. You've been on other um, episodes, though, too, right? On other Geek Generation podcasts. That's true. I have been on the Geek Generation podcast also. Were you yeah. not were you not on Random Movie Club? I honestly don't remember. I thought you I, thought, I did. Yeah, I knew it. I did do a random I movie club it. episode. 
I forget which yeah, one it was, but I, I knew um, it. I did an episode on the movie Her, which is That's an incredible right. movie. That is a good yeah. movie. It's a really, really good movie. So, you know, if you're curious, if you love movies and love movie discussions, not mm-hmm. only should you go check out the episode where I talk with Rob about the movie Her, but also go over to the Geek Generation Podcast Network and look for Katie Hasn't Seen That, which is another great, fun podcast from one of our friends. She is watching all the movies she has not seen and doing a little podcast episode for each. So it's a fun time. Check out both if you want. Yeah, that's that's a good one. I I was listening. She just released The Shining. So I was listening to that one. That one was really that's cool. That's right. Yeah. She did just do The Shining. Yeah. Oh, gosh. The funny thing is I haven't seen most of the movies Katie hasn't seen, so I'm in the same boat with her. <laughs> yeah, I've I've seen most of them, so I'm just like, interesting. But also because I watch way too many movies and things in my life, so. Yep, yep. yep. <laughs> anyway, coming yeah. up next time. The only things you'll need for caving. Love and a good song. Secret, Secret tunnel. tunnel. Secret tunnel. You're welcome. That's, that's my sixth <laughs> Through singing. the mountain. Secret, 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 <laughs> secret, secret, secret tunnel. I forgot how the rest of it goes, but then <laughs> I love that song so much. All this and more next time on Avatar, Avatar the, the podcast. podcast. Avatar the podcast is a proud part of the Geek Generation Network. Remember to check out all of our podcasts at thegeekgeneration.com. 